Hi, you are listening to Teach to Unite Everyday People with Danielle, Dexter, and my daddy. Alright, so this is our first episode of Teach to Unite Everyday People. And Danielle Dexter, how are we feeling today? Excited. I am also excited and also enthralled as well. <laughs> yeah, this is, well, I think this is really cool what we're doing and trying to get a chance to speak with people we admire and talk about things that are important to us. So for this first episode, we're going to speak with Sherry King. And I've known Sherry for more than 20 years. I taught her twice. Uh, she attended my wedding and she is someone who I think the world of. And Sherry's a licensed therapist and counselor. And what we're going to get to talk to her about is you know, how she got to where she is, what molded her, and really talk about mental health a little bit. So, you know, when you guys think about mental health, what comes to mind? I think I'm really blessed and maybe Desha feels the same way since we're a similar age and we grew up in a similar time. I feel like growing up maybe around high school is when I think it started to like enter the larger dialogue and people would say like, oh, I go to counseling, oh, I go to therapy. And I remember when I got to college, it was like very apparent. It was very accessible. Um, it wasn't like I had to pay a fee. It was already wrapped into my collegiate experience. And for me to find out how to get there, it was very easy. It wasn't like, you know, you had to knock on somebody's door and go down some secret hallway and just hope you happened upon it. Um, and yeah, I'm just very grateful that I'm growing up in a time now where it is more in the public discourse because I know talking to my parents and people from other generations, that wasn't the case. And it was something that was frowned upon and you were looked at as crazy or something was really wrong with you and you were kind of just shunned from the community. So those are some of my thoughts about it. Uh, Dexter, how about you? I think the most intriguing thing about mental health to me is the misconceptions of it. And I'm not, I don't like that there are misconceptions, but I think that because the conversations are happening more, there's a lot of layers to mental health that we as a general population have yet to understand. Uh, a lot of the diagnoses people assume is one thing. There are a lot of terms that are used interchangeably that are very, very different. Uh, but the fact that we are able to have these conversations and we're able to make these distinctions and just get a better understanding of what mental health is, because it's so important to the success of society, uh, it's really interesting for me and something that I know I want to continue to do in the future. I think one of the most fascinating things with mental health to me is, you know, we don't know what's going through somebody's mind. And as a teacher, as a husband, father, human, interact with so many people and, you know, at face value can, you know, try to read people and understand them, but you don't know what is, how anxious somebody might feel um, if somebody's dealing with depression. And with mental health, it's, you know, if, if I walked into a hospital with, you know, a, a stab wound, you know, I can be diagnosed really quickly and treated really quickly. With mental health, it takes, I think, time. And I think that's going to be a really important, you know, to kind of understand as we speak with Sherry. So without further ado, we'll get into our interview with Sherry Kane.
Well, we are so honored today for our first guest for Teach to Unite Everyday People. And this is someone who is one of the more amazing people that I know. So Sherry King, um, she's a licensed clinical professional counselor. She's, uh, she went to the University of Maryland College Park. And I know her from uh, way back in the day when she was one of my students at Chesapeake High School. You're one of the, the best people I know um, was, you know, when worked with you in high school, could see uh, your light shining bright already. And knowing um, all the work you've done and all the people you've worked with in your professional career, we thought you'd be a, an amazing first guest when we talk about, um, you know, the connections we have as everyday people. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, Sherry, so I'm gonna start out with the first question. And this one's kind of like a softball, just to see where you're at mentally, um, if anything's on your mind. So the first question is just, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Has anything been on your mind lately? Yeah. Uh, today I'm pretty content because it's Friday. So it's the end of a long work week. Um, I will say on Fridays, I tend to kind of reflect on my week. I see clients all throughout the week and that can range from 25 clients to 35 clients. This week was about 31 clients. So just reflecting on all the emotions that I had to kind of go through in sessions this week. Um, right now I'm content because it's been a pretty great week. There have not been any crises, uh, which I consider successful <laughs> for me as a therapist. Um, I try not to have too much on my mind because I do need to decompress. So I typically like to sit kind of in silence and allow myself to just pause. So that's why I say content. Now with your typical Friday after the work week, do you kind of just chill out on Friday nights or will you go out and try to catch up with people? I typically chill out. Um, so I mentioned like the sitting in silence thing. My friend, I think they called me last weekend. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go sit in silence for a bit. And they're like, oh, I love that. How long are you going to do that? I was like, as long as my body wants me to. And I think I sat in silence for the rest of the night until it was time to go to sleep. Uh, tonight, a friend invited me. So I might just go and catch up with a, a friend who I haven't seen in about a month. So sometimes I'll do that during the week. But typically Fridays are for me to do nothing. Hey, Sherry, I don't want them to have all the fun. I'm going to jump in here. Uh, so we know where you are now um, in your professional career, uh, but could you tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood upbringing? Uh, was there anything that really sparked you to get to this point or did it kind of come out of nowhere? Uh, was there anything in particular that really kind of groomed you to get to this point or did you just have what we would consider a normal childhood? Um, I'm black in America, so no, uh, no, <laughs> it's no, it's my childhood. So I grew up in Essex, Maryland. So that's in Baltimore County. Um, kind of the, the social and economic status kind of ranges. So the poor, lower SES to kind of mid to high SES. Um, I grew up with a single parent, uh, have an older brother and a younger brother. I did have a stepdad, but Primarily, like my mom was the one to take kind of care of us. So I was very much like a latchkey kid, had to gain some independent skills very young. I like to joke and say, I like to tell this story where my mom gave me some coins and uh, laundry detergent and like sent me on my way when I was seven to the laundromat in our neighborhood by myself. And people hear that now, they're like, are you crazy? And I'm like, I, I guess I thought that was normal because all the other kids in my neighborhood were doing things like, it was, we had to learn how to be independent really quickly because a lot of us were in single family homes, like single parent family homes, like our parents worked. Um, so everyone kind of helped each other out. It was very much a village where I grew up. But Essex is also known for its racism, to be its prejudice. Um, I always recount the story of like when I was five and I was called a nigger for the first time in my neighborhood. 
um, ever kind of story when I was eight and I was the only black person at a pool party and the, my classmate came to school that Monday and said, oh, my mom had to clean the pool out of the whole pool out when you uh, left because of whatever you put, you all put in your hair. And I had to like learn these things fairly young and experience prejudice fairly young. Um, but I had such a, I still have a very positive outlook and I grew up in a household with a very strong woman. And my mom is not the type to kind of lay down and let anyone disrespect or stop her from achieving her goals and her children were also raised with that mindset. So um, I always actually wanted to be a writer. So counseling was not on the radar at all until college. Um, I wanted to be a writer since middle school when it was during the angst of AOL chat rooms and writing angst COA status. Um, Dobbs knows because he's writing my poems in high school. I, I did creative writing with him. So he, he's read a lot of those angsty poems I had as like a teenager. But I had taken a psychology class, I think my senior year, junior year of high school. So that's got me, got me really into psychology. And that's what made me choose the, uh, that as my major in college. But with psychology, there's a lot of things, like a lot of paths you can take. And counseling... Believe it, I didn't choose that until uh, spring semester, my junior year, which is very late to try and choose like, what do you want to do? Because I only had a year left of school <laughs> and I knew I needed to go to graduate school if I wanted to enter some type of career and make some kind of money. But it was like, what am I going to be doing um, with this degree? And I decided to become a therapist because of an organization that I belong to, Girls Empowerment Mission. Um, I belonged since high school. Dob Meyer was actually the one to recommend me to that organization. I'm on the board of that organization now, and I'm still an alumni. Uh, but we, each group of girls gets a therapist. We get a counselor. And I was an over, I was an overachiever growing up, which means I put a lot of pressure on myself. And I had like breakdowns every year because I just piled too much. I was high key stress neurotic. He's nodding now because he knows and he's seen it. <laughs> Sorry, just for record, Don Meyer's nodding his head off. Um, but I remember having these sessions with this counselor through the program and receiving all of this help. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I think I can be this for someone to help someone process and learn ways that they can look at things differently. And I took, I had taken my counseling psychology course. That was my junior year, that spring semester. And I was like, oh yeah. So this is something I definitely really, really can do. Um, I had thought about it, but I'm like, to be a therapist, like that means I have to listen to people all day. Like, does that mean I have to talk to people with like schizophrenia? Like, what am I gonna do if there's a crisis? What if someone tries to choke me out? I don't know. Um, but I just knew that I wanted to help people like I had been helped. So that's, that was my childhood up to <laughs> teenagehood, up to college years. And that's how I got into my profession today. What years do you think were most formative for you? Seeing you go through high school and kind of uh, find your way through high school. Um, it seemed like, and I know I was nodding when you put the pressure on yourself, but it seemed that you were also kind of like an identity crisis, like figuring out who you are and who you want to be. Um, and I remember um, one time when you, I don't remember what year it was, but you, you said something to me like someone called you, I think an Oreo cookie. And I'm an Oreo, yeah. Um, I'm an Oreo and, and bougie. And I remember, uh, you know, usually when kids come to me with different things, uh, I know what to say, or I have something to say. But in that situation, I didn't know how to respond because that's not something, you know, that I've been through. Um, would you say like things like that made you want to also get into the profession? Or would you say that your you know, it was kind of just this idea of helping people or a little bit of a combination? It was a combination. I think we have moments in time where we learn about ourselves and 
like that's that's one uh formative years i mean adolescence is a very very tough time that's why my passion i didn't mention this but my i work with teenagers that's like my niche my group like 16 to young adulthoods uh young adulthood uh, ages and I chose that particular age group because I remember being that age group and trying to fit in, trying to fit some societal normal mode of like who I'm supposed to be, right? We're in high school and we're supposed, and you get all this information and we're all just trying to figure it out while also dealing with like science, hormones, everything is rushing at us. And then we have a lot of pressure too. Um, that particular instance of being called an Oriole it didn't really solidify like helping people for me, but it did solidify that I don't like feeling the way that made me feel and that we need to be very open and just nice to others, be kind to others, um, which really helps me now. Like in, in therapy, I, I bring up high school, I bring up with my teens, like just feeling kind of outcast or when they mention like, oh, I was bullied, I let them know bullying takes on many different forms, but I was, I got all the comments, the Oreo comments. Oh, you're too skinny, eat a sandwich. Oh, you're so tall, why don't you play back? I got all the different, like just comments that were hurtful. Um, and especially when you're at that age, everything is intensified. So, I'm glad for what I went through as an adolescence because it informed me in my kind of adulthood. In the time, I disliked everyone. Um, <laughs> when they like, I disliked a lot of people, I should say. Um, but it did open up that realm of like, I don't like this feeling. And I got to talk about that actually in gym with my counselor, just feeling like I'm, I, I want to fit in, but I don't really fit in. Like, I don't talk the way my peers. Talk. I don't like the same things they like. Um, I hung out with teachers in high school. Like I had like three best friends, but most of the time I was like going to my teacher's room first thing in the morning, like hanging out with like 23 would be our young teachers. Um, <laughs> but, and I listened to like the Beatles and <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't like hip, to, like I was hip to the, the culture at the time, but it wasn't my favorite thing. I wasn't into dating and boys. That was a huge thing. But I think as a therapist and meeting with like my, my teens that I meet with now and they tell me these things like, oh yeah, I got called this and I don't like the same thing as the, like the rest of the peers seem to like. I'm like, that's, that's fine. Like there's actually quite a bit of people who don't fit that mold. Um, so at the time it didn't tell me I wanted to be a counselor but it told me that I don't like that feeling. And, and I know other people probably felt this way and just to be kind to others because you don't know what they're going through. When you think about college, so, and this is something, you know, you went to what we'd call a, a PWI, um, and you think about, you know, you said in high school, you never really felt like you fit in. Um, did you feel like in college that you found, you know, uh, your niche of people? Um, and do you think that your time in college prepared you for you know, like personal and professional lives? Yeah, so college was an amazing experience. Um, I didn't know what a PWI was until after college, years after. Um, and I actually got a lot of slack for going to a PWI from people with, at my high school, still just on that Oreo chain. Um, but I got to college and I got to experience so many different cultures. Essex is very black, white, with a sprinkle of maybe someone who's Asian or African or maybe like, like a couple of people. But going to Maryland, I'm being exposed to every type of culture, religion, background, ethnicity, like all these different things. And I belong to an arts um, program. It's called College Park Scholars and there's different subgenres to it. But I decided to join the arts because I remember at that time I still was trying to write. Uh, psychology was my major, but I still wanted to be a writer. And I lived in a, an arts dorm. It was a four floor dorm full of the craziest hosh posh of people. I think the first month I was there, I experienced people shrieking for the first time, um, people doing drugs in front of me. <laughs> um, 
but everyone was so warm and welcoming and just trying to figure things out. And I'm still friends with a lot of those people to this day. I found out who I was through those experiences in college. Um, and something, I think I remember telling just my freshman year, Dobbs, because Dob Meyer came to visit. So he went to a concert. Yeah, I forgot we saw Ben Harper in DC. And I was like my first time going to like DC for a concert. And since in college, I was going right after that. But I kind of remember saying to you, like, I don't think y'all prepared us for, <laughs> for this. High school did not prepare me for freshman year of, oh, you have to get up and go to class on time. Oh, you need to actually do the, like you have to do well in the exams because your grade is only three exams. It's not worth all these multiple assignments like high school was. It was like, no, you have three exams and that's it. Uh, I did horrible freshman year. And that was a huge challenge to kind of overcome in school, I would see nodding heads. Like I went from being, I was valedictorian in high school, 4.0 student to a 2.15 my freshman year. It was bad. It was bad. I graduated with a 3.5, so I got my stuff together. But I always say like, it gets, it gets you ready for like theories and like book smarts. Like college is that for like books. Life experiences happen outside of the classroom. Professionally, no because they really don't, they prepare, because college, it's prepared. Our freshman year, we had to do a four-year plan. And that was really just to make sure that, hey, make sure you just get all 120 credits within the four years. You need to figure this out. You need to make sure you know what classes you're gonna sign up for to get this degree. We don't want anyone here for five, six years, even though, think about it, 120 credits full-time is considered 12 credits per semester. So there's for, you know, it, it does, the, the math doesn't add up. So we were all doing pulling like 15, 18 credit semesters trying yeah, they, to. They say they don't want you for longer than four years, but they're. They want that money five. though. That's true. Yeah, they'll, they'll take that money without a problem. Yeah. But it, I mean, it didn't, there was, I didn't take a professional development course and it wasn't really promoted to, um, but was promoted to go to like study group. <laughs> it was promoted to just make sure you studied and and learned some classes, I would say, as I got closer to the end of my college career, like undergrad, it started getting more practical in terms of like, okay, what do you wanna do? So I had a class called Helping Skills where I did, we did like mock therapy sessions and we had to record them and show like our techniques. That helped to prepare me to do therapy, but I knew I had to go to graduate school, which was going to prepare me more. But college was, uh, the life experiences outside of college kind of helped me to grow as a human being. Um, in terms of professionally, not so much. Like job fairs, sure. <laughs> I found through, there was a project I did my senior year that helped me to apply for a job that I did post-college there. But in terms of just development, not really. And I think that's one of the criticisms of college as a whole and the way it's designed you know, a lot of people can probably go into their careers without those years of college. Um, and it's, I think, you know, you talked about not feeling prepared. I've took that feedback and that's something, you know, I think we as high school teachers specifically need to make sure that we're preparing kids for, you know, if they're going straight to college uh, for what to expect, or if they're going straight into a career military, the things that they need, not just, uh, there's a, a disconnect um, when we talk about our educational system. Especially as a counselor, how have your views on mental health changed over time? Um, maybe, did you, how was, what did you think about it before you started the program that you started in high school? And do you feel like since being in that program to all the way to where you are today that your views on it have changed a lot? Mental health, I had no idea really what it was like in high school, right? We, I mean, take psychology class, you hear about therapy, but there's a stigma. Yes, like the, it was very much real of, you only go to therapy if you're crazy, right? Like something has to be seriously wrong with you. I actually went to therapy in high school. Um, I explained I had like breakdowns like every year. My mom was very concerned about the fact that I was having breakdowns. So I had, I experienced therapy um, 
and it's, this is how it is still to say. So a lot of private insurances, and this is for a lot of like working people, the first three sessions through a job are paid. And then you have to kind of pay something out of pocket afterwards. Like it's it's not all um, monolith. It's not uniform, like different people's plans are different. So my mom's plan was she got the first three sessions free through her insurance. After that, she would have to pay. Again, single parent, just bought a house. I was in high school. She has three kids. No. So I had three sessions to process whatever the heck was going on. Um and I don't even remember that therapist. I remember she was older, white, and the, the she was like, oh, you get this way when you're about to get your period. That's how I, I remember that. Like, it was a very, I don't, I didn't like that experience. Like I said, Jim was better. That was my, I, I say that's like a true counselor experience, but my actual real therapy experience was with this woman who's like, oh, well, you only get this way because your hormones and da, da, da. And I'm like, ma'am, I think I have anxiety, but you're just not, <laughs> you're not dealing with that. But as a, 15 year old, I can't, I didn't know how to verbalize that. Um, so mental health wasn't really on my radar because we didn't know about it. No one talked about that. No one talked about therapy. No one went to therapy. I didn't know anyone who went to therapy. And then in college, they promote the counseling center. But in college, it is based on, oh, if you're feeling suicidal because you're stressed. And my freshman year, someone did commit suicide. So we then had that, like, now it's grief counseling. Um, so go see someone if you're grieving or you're super, super sad that you want to hurt yourself. So that was like, my mental health still had that stigma, right? Like you only go when it's super, super serious. Uh, with Jim, it was just provided to us as like someone to talk to. And it was just a conversation. Uh, I didn't consider that sessions, really. I didn't know. Graduate school was when you really learn more about like techniques and things like that, but they still don't teach you too much of the system itself. So that was post-grad school. My views of mental health changed throughout the years as I learned more about it. It's important. We need to talk about it. It needs to be available to everybody. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's because we deal with insurances and we deal with just state requirements. I am a mental health advocate. I still am like huge of talking to people about it. Recently, I've started to lean more on looking at like policy changes that we need to make. So I know this year I wrote letters into our state legislator about joining this compact law, which will allow us to be able to practice over state lines. Because as of right now, we cannot. If you're licensed in the state, you can only see people with business in the state you're licensed. But if we were able to say a client moves to like Georgia, I can see them if they, you know, move. Um, so now I'm getting more into the policy side of things and looking at it and just seeing kind of peeling back that curtain and seeing all like the ugliness, the behind the scenes and trying to deal with that while also trying to be there for like my clients. There's a lot of nuances that go into the mental health field, right? There's therapy where your clients come in and talk to you but I still have the back of my mind, like, is your insurance going to be active tomorrow? Like, I got to deal with insurance. I got to deal with like policy changes. Um, the state of emergency just got lifted. So we were doing telehealth. Like we, there was, they were very lenient with therapy. Right now things are kind of in shame because like, are they going to remain lenient? Because insurance has had to pay for telehealth. They were supposed to before, but they were getting away with not. But now they don't have that veal of, oh, the state of emergency. So now we're dealing with people possibly losing the ability to see me <laughs> and tell out like, this is very convenient. Some people have no transportation to come into therapy, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of background, just bureaucratic BS in mental health. So I came in with rose colored glasses and then I had to really learn about the background stuff and go, oh man, I just want to help people. I didn't have to deal with all this other crap. Yeah, before we get to the next question, um, I do want to say I appreciate your advocacy and, you know, writing the letters and trying to change the policies because I think another, I guess, general stigma about mental health is now that is being talked about that makes it more easily accessible. It's like just because we know a little more about it doesn't mean that it's at the point where it's where it needs to be in terms of people being able to get it consistently. And I've been blessed enough. So this is, I'm currently in my second therapy cycle. So um, through my mom's 
job, she has insurance. So we've been able to do that. And um, my current therapist just moved to DC a few weeks ago, um, but we're still able to do virtual sessions. And it's like, well, one, I was able to get to his office when I was, uh, when he was still in Baltimore. And then now, like, if I didn't have Wi-Fi, what was I going to do? Right. So there's, there, there are those uh, very minute details that people don't really pay attention to when it comes to how can we consistently help people in this realm. Um, and just knowing that, you know, there are people that are in the trenches that are trying to do more about that is definitely something that I appreciate. So thank you for that. Yeah, we are we're speaking on our, you know, separate journeys with our mental health and how we're dealing with it. And your job is, of course, to assist others in dealing with their uh, mental health issues and journeys. But how do you deal with yours? Is there anything in particular that you do? Um, any routines or anything like that? We know on the weekends, like you said, you just chill out and, you know, reflect and do stuff. But are there things throughout the week that you do that uh, help you stay in a centered, grounded place? Yeah, so I set boundaries with people. Um, my clients know I have boundaries. They only can reach me within a certain amount of hours, Monday through Friday. Um, but throughout the week, I set aside an hour during the day in between sessions. Um, I have a dance party. I have my own little dance party. I dance for my cat. Um, I'll sing around the house. I listen to a podcast every Wednesday. The podcast comes out on Tuesday. I will mindlessly watch like just dumb trash teen TV shows because I don't have to think so deeply about them, but they're so entertaining. Uh, and I like to be in the know with my teens. Um, but it's all to help me like shut my brain off. When you see people who've been through, who are talking about their trauma, right? They're talking about like just anxiety and very serious matters. I, we can, I can vicariously take a lot of that on with my own stuff. So sometimes I need to turn off my brain. I'm very good at being able to do that. I also schedule cry sessions. If I am feeling way overwhelmed and I know it's going to burst, I am very preventative in the way that I make sure it's not coming out inappropriately. Like in high school, it always came out inappropriately because I didn't take care of myself. But now I make sure if like, there has been a lot of buildup, like last summer with everything that happened with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, all of that, plus my job's response to it, but then they also had a lot of expectations on us um, and clients dealing with that. It was a lot. So I had to schedule out like cry sessions and I have a playlist that is literally called like heartbreak and it will foster tears and it will allow me to just get it out. And I tell my clients to do this too because it's important that we feel emotions. And so I have those routines in place where if I need to feel emotions, I know how to bring those forth and process them. Um, but if I need to get silly, I know how to get silly. I love my dance parties. My cat, not so much. She thinks I'm crazy, but it's help, it helps me to kind of let loose and relax. Weekends are for family and friends. I make sure to go and run errands too, but I make sure to you know catch up with people. And I mentioned setting boundaries earlier. I don't only set boundaries with clients. I set boundaries with friends. They know if they want to, if they want to vent to me, they can't. <laughs> I don't have the mental capacity to, and I some I feel really bad about it. Uh, but they know why I can't take on that. Um, it's a joke. It's like if they start to, I just go. I hope you know that I can't bill for this. So if I can't bill for it, I'm not going to listen. And they think it's fun. They're like, really? That's kind of rude. And I'm like from my mental health, if you, if I was like, I can give you recommendations for someone to rent to, but I can't be that one. And that's just to take care of my mental health. Um, so yeah, I have a little, a lot of little routines like, like that. And like I said before, I like to sit in silence. That's my going offline time. My phone goes on do not disturb. I sit in silence. And so that helps me to, to decompress. Those all sound like a good mixture of having time for yourself, goofy time. Um, but like I said earlier, it seems like you know yourself really well um, as you've gone through these years. Now, for those who might be thinking about getting into a profession like yours, what would you say your favorite and least favorite thing about your job? Oh, my favorite thing about my job is are the breakthroughs that my clients have. It is amazing to sit here and see like the, 
light bulb go off because I like I asked a question to make them then reach <laughs> that like eureka moment. Um, I love seeing the breakthroughs and I love seeing the progress with them. It's my favorite thing about this job. It's just like each person reaching their own goals and potential and changing negative habits. Um, the least favorite, and if you talk to any therapist, it's the admin side. It's the notes, it's the insurance, it's the dealing with scheduling, it's, it's the paperwork side. We just really want to help. We love to help. That's and when you can help someone, it feels good. But then that that other stuff, like the bureaucracy that I mentioned earlier, not so fun stuff comes in and can really knock you out. I left my last job because of bureaucracy. I was there for five years. I was working with clients who are on Medicaid in Baltimore City, clients who wouldn't necessarily have come to therapy if they didn't know about this or people like I came to them. They didn't have to come to me. Um, but because of bureaucracy, because of the administrative crap, I had to leave because my mental health was getting affected and then I couldn't attend to my clients. And it was a beautiful thing to tell when I was telling them all that I had to leave. It was a beautiful thing. As I said, you know what, Ms. Sherry, like you got to take care of yourself. You, you take care of all of us. You take care of all of us like all the time. Like, no, you have to take care of yourself. And it's beautiful to hear that, but it sucked that I had to do that. That was like, I don't like quitting. You know that I, I was not raised to quit. Um, so quitting a job and I, I, I never left the job that way because I willingly chose to. Um, it was always because it was the next transition. That wasn't a transition. That was me being fed up and having to go. So that was like the least favorite thing is kind of to deal with the outside, the, the background stuff. Right? You can peel back the curtain. I think the bureaucracy and in, in any profession, that's, it's the tough part, you know, and I think as a, I've been teaching 18 years now and the, there are so many people who get in the way of uh, teaching and learning um, that their, their jobs are to do the opposite, but they make it tough for kids to learn and for teachers to teach. And it's, it's really shameful. Um, because it, it takes a toll on a lot of people. Dexter touched on this a little bit. Uh, you touched on it a little bit. And I know personally in my lifetime, even though like, yeah, um, I have, I feel like mental health is more in like the public sphere now. Like you said, I feel like when I was younger, it was something that only crazy people went to. Like, I didn't really know anybody who did it. Whereas now, honestly, thinking about all my friends, I could say that maybe at least half of my friends have like done therapy before. Um, so just asking you, what do you think has spurred mental health to have more visibility in the public lexicon as of recent? Um, I think people talking about it more, and I'm thinking mostly like celebrities, right? A lot of celebrities have been coming out in recent years talking about their own mental health journeys. And like Taraji P. Henson has been on this whole campaign about like black mental health um, and bringing it more to like the public eye. I know some celebrities have written books on it, but we're doing a lot of more like social media campaigns and podcasts. It's just, it's kind of, now that it's more accessible to people, there's more books, there's just, there's videos, there's all of this. It's become more okay. I think for people to come into a therapist's offices, like office, I have a lot of black men on my caseload. That is huge. And they come, they're like, oh, well, I mean, you know, the Sigma was not to, we supposed to, no, we don't talk about our feelings. We don't talk about any of this stuff, but it took like another, it took like their favorite basketball player or football player to bring this up and go, oh yeah, I go to therapy all the time. And it's like, all right, all right. Well, they, they got stuff. I should go to therapy. So I think the huge, like just the social media campaign and just the celebrity campaign has put it in the forefront. Uh, TV shows have put it in the forefront, right? Uh, so it's become more like just uh, talked about. Yeah, you touched on some points that I want you to expand on a little bit. So you talked about one, a lot of the um, black males on your caseload 
and how um, it takes a lot for minorities in general to get to a place of even coming to you as a therapist. So do you feel any added pressure to help the minorities out? I don't want to say more, uh, but just to, to for them to go through the process and feel as though it actually does something so that that stigma breaks, that it's not really for us, I'll say. Uh, additional question to that is you being um, a Black woman in America in the field, and you said with 30% of their- Black in general, yeah. Black in general, right. So does that also uh, put any pressure on you just knowing I'm a minority in this field, having to deal with everything that I deal with in the world and wanting to be good at my job and you know all of that together. So do you, how much pressure, I guess, do you feel in general doing what you do? I think in the beginning, I felt immense pressure. In the beginning, I felt like I needed to like represent mental health to the best of my abilities. Like I'm like, oh, I got one shot with this client because they're coming in apprehensive already. Like I need to like be like superwoman at this point. And like, you're going to get a breakthrough by the second session with me because I want you to be able to like want to keep coming. That got thrown out of the window very quickly because that was too much pressure. Again, remember, I have a history of putting pressure on myself. So I had to learn how to stop doing that. I treat them as I would any other client at this point. You're coming to me for help. They come to me more because they think that I will understand their plights of being Black. And I do, but not always. And I always caveat and I, and I always bring this up. And I'm like, just because I look like you doesn't mean I know what your experience is. So you, I'm going to treat you the way I would treat anybody else just learning about you. Um, we have a lot of support systems. I belong to a couple of Facebook groups. Um, there's one in particular called Black Therapists Rock. And it's a very nice support system to have, especially throughout this entire year. Just we were in there just talking about like, is anyone just like over it? Are we just done? How, how, is, how is everybody doing? Like we need to check in with each other. I have my own colleagues that I talk to. Um, because we do, we feel the pressure to perform while everything is still going on, right? Because all the things that were happening that were bringing all my black clients to me throughout this year, I also was going through it. I'm like, oh yeah, I saw the video as well. I'm going through that the anxiety you feel. Oh yeah, I feel that as like, I get it. We can process it together, but I also tell clients I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. So no, I used to, Dexter put that pressure on to try and represent it because they came in with that stigma, right? Like, is this going to be helpful? I don't think therapy helps, right? I had a couple of people come in like, I don't think any of this is help. It's going to be talking. That's it. And then I'm like, oh crap, I got to make sure I keep them coming. That wasn't helpful in the slightest me doing that. So just me being me and having my style has kept me going. Um, but I don't feel this pressure to represent to black clients or just in general. I'm just, I am a mental health therapist first. I just happen to be black. Now, Sherry, when you think about all of this and when we started Teach to Unite last fall, the whole idea was we see this uh, divisiveness in our country and it seems like we don't understand each other in, in so many different ways. What do you think creates the greatest divisions in our country? I think with division, we have a very, this comes back to like psychology, we have a very difficult time with distress or discomfort or things that are not what we know them as or just understanding something that's different from our views. Once you're kind of stuck on a belief, it's very difficult to change that belief. So I think a lot of division comes from just people's unwillingness to open their mind and listen to the other person, listen to understand, not listen to, to respond. I, and I say this to people, I wish that in schools we can start learning effective communication, active listening, things that as a therapist I was taught, uh, we should start teaching kids how to do that and just adults too, how to listen to understand someone's point of view. You don't have to agree, 
but you have to validate that that's their experience and that's their belief. And I think that's where the greatest divide comes in. Everyone's just listening to respond, right? Like look at debates when we have to like vote for all these people. They're just like, uh-uh. all right, but it's like, dude, did you hear what they said? Like, do we understand where it's coming from? Uh, like, let, let's, like, cause when you sit down and talk to a person who opens their mind, if both people are open-minded, you get a common ground. You get like the hugs, you get the, oh, like I get that. Oh, I understand why you're scared. Like, I understand why you feel that way because the rhetoric you're getting is this, this is the message you're getting. And this is the message I'm getting. So this is why we're clashing so much. And really like, do we even know what's going on? We have a common enemy. There's a lot of common, we have a lot of commonalities more than we have um, uh, some uh, differences, but no one's really willing to sit down and talk and listen. Not even, I wouldn't say talk, but just listen, listen to really, truly, genuinely understand another human being. And we have to see that. And I think it needs to be promoted more. But what gets promoted? Drama, right? We love drama. We love, you know, bad guy stories. Like I love watching like mafia movies, but those are not like the greatest depictions of human interactions. So, but that's what we like crave. I don't know why, but if we showed more people being able to sit down and like have like conversations. I saw like Emmanuel Acho, I think his name was. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Dexter? Um, who I discovered last summer through that, his interviews with a black man. When you actually sit and talk to you and like listen, you hear things and you're like, oh. And you can see some more compassion because at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all trying to just live and get by. But if everyone can just find like that, you know, the compassion within to help another being and not just see differences, then we could be united. But we're divided just because it's not it's not promoted to do any of that. Yeah, I mean, I think we we get told all the time how different we are from one another. And ultimately you can find those differences, uh, kind of confirmation bias. If you think you're going to be different, you'll find that. But I think that idea of finding those commonalities, you know, it's something uh, something really important. And uh, I think it's something all of us kind of have a role in, in playing. I totally agree with what you said about in school. I think we need to improve when we talk about public education. It has to include some of, you know, basic things like listening, problem solving, conflict resolution, uh, being able to think about how something you say or do has an effect on somebody else. It's, it seems doable, but ultimately, you know, when we talk about public education, we're, we're not making some of the improvements that I think can be made. And you talked about systemic issues. I think lots of times, you know, for me, I believe everything starts in school. And I think that we can, at a very young age, kind of work on finding these commonalities. And one of the things I was going to ask you about with mental health and young children. So what would it take to get in schools, in communities, mental health awareness and uh, therapy for kids all kids at very young ages. Because, for example, I saw uh, up to this point in Baltimore, we have 177 homicides this year. And every one person who is killed, you know, there's kids, you know, family members, there's, it leaves a lasting impact. And, you know, when I think about schools and how to get, reach kids, like at a very young age, what can we do? How do we, how do we solve an issue like that? So I mentioned my previous job, which was to see people in their homes, but I also saw them at school. Um, there is, I think, a, now a push for mental health programs to be in schools. Um, before I like left that job, that was what was happening. Baltimore County had come up with like contracts with mental health providers to place a therapist in the school. So I, I did used to see elementary age children. Um, 
you mentioned like the homicides in Baltimore City, you'd be very surprised how desensitized these kids are to homicide. They've lost people, but that's just life. Like my clients just be like, oh yeah, my brother was killed. Or no, my cousin was killed last week. We're just going to go to the funeral next week. And da, 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 and I'm just like, do we need to discuss? Like what's, you know, I had someone who was in a, who was shot at, <laughs> but was like, no, no, I mean, I'm going to be good. And I'm like, oh, you're not. Like it's going to come back up. There's survivor's guilt that a lot of people go through. There's a lot. Um, but I think we really need to have us in the schools. Like they have the school social workers and counselors. That's a different type of field. Their training is different. It's not a mental health therapy. Uh, and I remember trying to go see clients in schools. And sometimes I got pushback, like, oh no, they need to take, they need to be in math right now. I'm just like, well, their lights just got cut off and now they're kind of staying in a living room with like, you don't even know, I can't say all this, of course, but like, you don't know what their home life situation is, but because I'm in the home, I know. And I know they want to see me today. So I'm going to take them out of math class. Like I, I, they, I don't care about addition at this point. Um, so we need to, I, I think it needs to come higher up and they've been doing, I know in Baltimore County, they're doing that. I, the city has also had contracts with, with clinics and agencies to have the counselor therapists in the schools for access. So they are making some, some strides with that. That's good. Cause that's honestly, kid can't learn math if they're uh, traumatized, you know, if they can't concentrate. So that's, I think, you know, we need to make some priorities and find ways to make sure that every kid is ready uh, to be able to learn and, if, if I ever become superintendent, I will uh, hire you as a uh, coordinator of uh, <laughs> mental health for uh, the school district um, because I know that uh, you'd be taking care of people and be thinking things through and not let the bureaucracy get in your way. Yeah, there is some schools, there are a couple, I, I hate that it's individual lives. There, there are schools who recognize mental health is important. Like they have like their calm down rooms. Like a lot of schools are now, like there's a couple schools in Barbara City elementary schools, I don't know which one that did this, but they had a mindfulness room. They had where like kids, when they get really like elevated, they're like, let's go to the mind. Like we learn how to do deep breathing. We're doing yoga. We're doing a lot of mindfulness coping mechanisms, as opposed to like, just send them the in school suspension. Well, they're nine. They don't know how to regulate their emotions right now. Like they got this person just pissed them off. They're angry. I want to throw something. I'm going to throw, I would throw some scissors when I was upset. Like my rage is that I don't know how to verbalize it. So I'm going to throw things. I'm going to have a tantrum because I'm still a kid. Uh, let's not punish them for it. Let's teach them how to regulate and deal with that. Another thing I wanted to mention is just, I, when I would be in schools, I would talk to like teachers and say, Hey, you should really do like a check-in at the beginning of the day, like a feelings check-in um, and do a mindfulness exercise, do like a stretch and at the end, a lot sometimes in the beginning and the end to do a stretch or a cool down. And you'll notice the difference with kids' performance because then they're going to want to come. They wanna, they're going to want to be there. They're going to know how to regulate their emotions better. Absolutely. That's something I've included in my daily routine. And I'll save this story for another time. But at Chesapeake, uh, a student did try to chase me around with a pair of scissors. And uh, I... Um, he never tried to uh, stab me, but he was, and he wasn't even angry at me. He was angry at somebody else, but he liked me. I was his favorite teacher, but he thought it would be. Uh, You're the guy. easier target. That happened a lot. I, I, I feel we, we tend to take out our rage or anger on a person we know is not going to like abandon us for it. Um, or like push away that person we know won't and you were always a teacher that I only ever saw you angry that one time which was very odd uh but <laughs> you all everyone knew like okay we could just go to the calm teacher right there because you always usually kept the cool I don't know who chased you with scissors you're gonna tell me who that was but uh, <laughs> that I, I I that's what it was like it's they knew that you wouldn't abandon like the fear of abandonment is real with kids and unconditional just love is what a lot of people need and I think if another human being just shows that you will clearly see like, hey, I understand like you're upset right now. You were pissed and I get that and you were allowed to be, but this isn't safe. <laughs> so 
let's you be, I'll talk to you over here. And I'm sure that's how you probably like, let me know there's something else going on. Let me talk to you over here. They don't want to stab you, but they just wanted someone to recognize I'm angry. Yeah. Like once a year, I'll have uh, a day where I get angry, something will trigger me. But for the most part, I've, I've still maintained my uh, laid back demeanor. Can I say an assignment you had us do that I think is very, I, and I do this in session, and I just realized that I got this from you. Like, I'm so sorry. I stole my jack from you, but like, I'm not sorry. Thank you. But I just realized that I'm like, oh, I signed this in my, I've been assigning since I've been a therapist. I'm like, oh crap, I got that from Dobbs. You had us do like a, make a playlist that represents us or something, like find music, make like a playlist. And then we had to like share it and like process. And we were teenagers. So it was a lot of Lincoln Park going on. There was a lot of angsty, like emo music. That was a very, like our class, you were just like, what in the world is wrong with any of you? <laughs> I know you're the face, but I give that to clients because like, music is a great way of expression. And uh, to help us like process. So I want to give you like your props. I make my clients do that. I make them make a playlist to represent like, oh, it helps you when you're happy. Like, uh, what are some songs that represent like your anger, your sadness, you know, like your hopes and dreams. Like I assign that. And I just, just now remembered, I'm like, I jacked that off of an assignment you had us do in the 10th grade. Yeah, that's the, the soundtrack of our lives assignment. And kids would pick one song to present. But yeah, I think we all have soundtrack for our lives and uh it changes but um you know it's feel free to use it you don't have to give me the the copyright um but yeah that's i think that's a, a great way to get through with people i think this is a, a great final question what gives you hope what gives me hope i like when you get to talk to people every day and just see or just hear about what they want to be and what they wish to do. And I just genuinely meet good people. Like I get to connect with people on a deeper level and get to learn and see the goodness. So it gives me hope that there's not, not all is lost. Um, I was just working with a client who was like freaking out, like this world, the climate change, oh, this world is crap, it's doomed. And I'm like, no, man, there's a lot of good in this world. I choose to see the good because I see it all the time. So it just gives me hope that there's just like good people in this world. There's kind people. Um, and we're all just trying to like get by, right? So that's what gives me hope. Yeah. My cat. My cat. <laughs> I just got her like last year, but she's become everything to me. Um, but like just like even like adopting her and seeing like organizations that are there to like help pets and things and like it, I was just like wow like that's amazing just seeing how people give their all to wanting to do like you know help a cause so I see a lot I choose to see a lot of good more than I see bad so that gives me hope absolutely and I think that's you know kind of one of the things we're trying to figure out is you know, we're told all the time that everything is falling apart and that people are awful. And I disagree. People are good. And you can find the, the good in almost anybody once you get to know them and give them a chance. But uh, thank you wholeheartedly for giving us a chance with this first interview. Um, you know, you're amazing. We appreciate you taking this time out to chat with us so candidly. And I hope that, uh, I mean, we're joking that at least our moms will listen to the podcast, but. Uh, no. So I told, so whenever this comes out, <laughs> I, my, my colleague, my friend who I talk to on a daily basis, is also a therapist. She's like, Oh, I'm going to listen. Right. Like that's okay with you. If I listen, I'm like, Oh yeah, girl, I'm making everybody listen. So, you know, our, the network, I, we going, it's our, like, yeah, my mom is going to listen, but you know, my mother, she's going to make everyone in her circle listen. And then they're going to make everyone in their circle listen. I'm a pretty big deal, guys. I just want you to realize in my small state of mind, like I can be a pretty good deal. Like I have a huge network of supporters behind me. So I want something to occur. It's going to occur. I love that for you. Like, yes. <laughs>
But you gotta tell you how to pump. Sometimes you just gotta like toot your own horn. I'm a fan of doing that. So like, I like my 30th birthday party. I had to turn people away. I had, I had to cap it okay. at like 80 people, and that was hard. I'm sure that's that, that's how I can be a little braggadocious. <laughs> and then they're like, "Whoa, how do you?" I'm like, mm, "Yeah, I'm loved." So all of those people are gonna listen. So we're gonna get at least 80 people listening. At least 80 plus our moms. So plus moms, uh, yep. But thank you so much, Sherry. Uh, we appreciate you and keep doing your thing. Keep making the impact that you're doing and keep, you know, shining that light. Thank you all for having me. This was fun. I was nervous, but this is a conversation. Yeah. I lost my nerves pretty quickly. Y'all did great asking me questions. Thank you. You're going down in history as the first, like the first guest. So no. Oh, this is going in like my bio. Hey. <laughs> this is gonna, I'm going to tell my organization like, hey guys, I had a podcast. Like, can you add that to my bio? I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, Sherry, have a great weekend. Same to you, Mr. Damar and Dexter. Like, go Thank you. Everybody take you guys' rest time. Everybody just yeah. chill out. <laughs> yeah so I'm um, can I end this the way I end my sessions of course so I end my sessions sessions by saying choose to have a good week and be kind to yourself so I want you all to choose to have a good week and choose to have a good day every day and be kind to yourself and give yourself credit at the end of the day give yourself credit for three things all right I I will do that and I will try to spread that as well um thank you thank you thank you you're welcome. All right, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye. That was an amazing first interview. What'd you guys think? So what really stood out to me was that um, I have gone to therapy before. I've seen two different therapists and I love, I really like talking to people and hearing like multiple sides of the story. And I feel like when I go into like a counseling session, it's kind of weird because I am the one talking the entire time. And this person that is listening to your whole life story has no like chance to input like, oh, this is my background. This is me. It's really just like, this is your moment. So I think it was really interesting to hear the background of Sherry and how she got to where she is and just shed light on the fact that our therapists are people as well and they have experiences that have molded them. And that ultimately impacts the way they're able to show up at their job every day. So I think that's something that really stood out to me and stuck with me. For sure. Yeah, something that stood out to me is the way that she described how she can keep herself sane and how she upholds her own mental health. Uh, so as she was explaining, being in the field where all you do is take on other people's problems and there's so many caseloads and so many lives that you are impacting and you're understanding and you're diving into, but you also have the most important one, which is your own. And knowing how to separate work from play, knowing uh, that your friends can't talk to you about their problems because that can be detrimental to you is extremely important. And just being sure about how to make sure that you can do your job, well, she can do her job uh, to the best of her ability was something that I found really, really intriguing. That kind of, I'll jump on that in the sense that really as a former teacher of hers, so impressed with the, the woman that she's become. And when she was talking about work, I mean, you could see, you could feel how much she puts into it. She's invested in it. She truly, truly cares about the people that she works with. And it also it is exhausting to her. You know, she, you know, has her strategies for decompressing, but it takes a toll. And that's something I think we as the general public need to show some understanding and a appreciation of for people who, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives are trying to assist others. Something that Dexter just said just jogged my memory. I remember when she said it, I was kind of taken aback and I didn't really have the words at the moment to ask the follow-up question until afterwards. But when she said that she can't really take on the problems of her friends or like be there for them to vent, that kind of made me think if her friends are kind of, or even if she feels like she can't show up 
in the full like capacity for her friends. For myself, those are when my friendships are cemented. It's like anybody can be there for you when the going is high and life is great, but who's there when you're, you know, in those depths? So I guess a follow-up question would be if she feels like that impacts the depth or the um, I guess completeness of her friendships that she's able to have with others. But yeah, that was another thing that stood out to me. Another thing that stood out to me is I love that she doesn't really put pressure on herself in terms of how other people see her doing well in her profession. She knows that first and foremost, it is her and her patients and all of the outside noise, all of the, excuse me, all the things that people say about um, her being a African-American woman, the things that she has to go through on a daily basis and not really letting that affect her main goal, which is to get all of the people who come to her and confide in her, uh, the breakthroughs that they need in order to move on with their lives and, and get through their situations. For sure. But yeah, great first interview and I'm excited for the next one. We would love to hear your thoughts surrounding this episode. Feel free to drop us a line at teach2unite at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening. Do something kind for someone today. I am everyday people. We are everyday people.